Quiet on set, quiet on set, quiet on set. Roll film, act one, and action. Welcome to the world of illusion. Flickering by on the silver screen, these dreams come to life, capturing our lives with beautiful lies that fill our eyes with wonder. It's not all industrial light and magic. There is no mystical force at play. It's hard work and spackle. It's long days and nights of framing sets and rigging lights. It only seems like wizardry, but it's really just chemistry that lets them take something brand new and make it look like it's been aged by a century. Computer generated imagery may have changed the industry, but let's not forget it's movie magic that still takes place in real spaces on handmade sets. It takes real skill and craft to turn a storyboard into scenery to make a real landscape covered in alien greenery and make a working thing out of someone's dreamed up machinery. All right, cut. Cut everybody. Let's reset the scene and get ready to go into act two. And action. Every moment on screen is a plotted out scheme with the team of dozens and hundreds behind it. Such meticulous planning for something that might be missed while the camera is panning, but it's indispensable for the suspension of disbelief. There are cast and crews waiting to teleport you to any one of the millions of worlds hidden in the hills of Georgia where they play professional make-believe. This episode's a real treat for all the cinema fans and screen geeks. The guest for Sculpting Things is a movie maker who's going to give you a behind-the-scenes peek. Welcome to Journeyman's Journal. I'm your host, Javon Franks, and thank you for joining me on this trek from inner places to outer spaces in search of insights and inspirations. Please remember that Journeyman's Journal is a multimedia experience, and occasionally you'll hear audio cues like this. When you do, that means there's additional content that you can check out on Facebook, Instagram, or the website jmansjournal.com. That's J-M-A-N-S-J-O-U-R-N-A-L dot com. On the website, all the illustrations for each episode are housed on the page that says the podcast. If you visit Instagram, you'll see a header and footer, which all the goodies are posted between. And on Facebook, new episodes and all their content are pinned at the top of the page. If you like this podcast, please share it. And I don't mean one of those soft mentions and passing like, this is pretty good. You ought to give it a listen. No, no. Like actually send it to somebody that you think would like it just like you would with your favorite movie or TV show. The illustrations and videos of the introductory poems like the one you just heard are great things to tag people on or drop in their email. I'm working on my first giveaway. For all the journeyers who have joined me on Patreon, you'll be the first to receive those gifts. And I'm going to make it where anybody who's listening can get in on the fun. So the details for that are going to come out on next week's episode. Sculpting Things is a behind the scenes peek at movie magic. My guest this week is actually someone I just happened to meet in passing, Chris Reynolds. For the past several years, he's been working in the Georgia film industry, which is absolutely booming. And he was able to shed some light onto what happens behind the scenes and on the sets long before filming actually starts. 
Before this episode gets rolling, I want to ask you to please stick around to the very end. You're going to get a sample of Backpage, one of the special features of this show that's just for the Patreon folks. So, on to the show. Today, our guest is Chris Reynolds, and he is a talented sculptor and artist who's really taking uh, his skills to a, the, to a level where uh, we all actually get an opportunity to appreciate and enjoy them. Uh, many people know that Georgia has become the Hollywood of the South. The entire state is speckled with great productions. Of course, Atlanta has many uh, studios that have come online. But all across the state, you're now finding this this movie industry that's not just budding, but is really becoming an anchor for productions. And that's a great thing because it, it brings the action close to home and it gives a lot more artists an opportunity to have their work shown in ways that uh, that end up on the big screen and end up on our small screens in some cases. And Chris has had a great career thus far. And I'm just going to rattle off some things that you probably have seen. Stranger Things, I'm a fan. I can't wait for the next season to come out. Pitch Perfect, The Conjuring 3, Godzilla, King of Monsters. Of all things to work on, I mean, Godzilla is a, is a great uh, – I mean, it's a, it's a movie dynasty. It's lasted for decades and continues to be uh, a movie that people really get excited about. Chris, thank you for joining me on Journeyman's Journal. How you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited because you a lot of what I like to explore is really about the journey that people go through to get to where they are. And you've had an interesting experience in that. But before we move forward, I want to ask, what is your first memory of being an artist, of art being that thing that just was special for you and was something that brought you joy and was and that made you want to do more of it? Um, the first, I just remember, even when I was a little kid, it was something that I could do and just kind of zero in on and it could draw my focus. And I mean, I think I was maybe a weird, kind of a weird little kid because that <laughs> and the world would like drop away. Um, and I, you know time would just pass and I could I could get lost into it I was I was a drawer when I was little when I was a kid it was it was drawing was my big thing and like comic books you know when mm -hmm. I got to be older it was just tr copying and tracing and stealing you know Jack Kirby was basically most oh, yeah. cool for me and was it was it those kind of early drawings that we all do of like your family and animals and and scenes in nature? Was there anything in that those early uh, that early art for you that that really uh, became a mainstay? Comics, superheroes. Okay. Yeah, that's what I wanted to draw. And ultimately, I think when I started pointing towards more towards fine art, it was the figure was all comic books were were drawing figures you know mm -hmm. so you got a chance to work on guardians of the galaxy too as well uh -huh. so, and and everything marvel coming out of the comic book world have you 
have you had a chance to work on any characters or heroes or productions that uh, were from the comics you you enjoyed as a kid? Um, I remember Guardians being like, they made a comic out of that? Like, it was such a weird sort of B-list comic. And it mm-hmm. was it was crazy. I remember thinking, like, if you told me when I was 12 that I was going to work on a Marvel movie, mm-hmm. I would have lost my mind. But, um, <laughs> uh, um, I don't honestly, like, it, when, you're asking, when you're talking about characters and stuff, see, I do... It's weird. I do sculpture, which is a lot for the movies, which is um, mostly sets and, um, you know, like a cave or a castle mm-hmm. or I've done a few. You know, sometimes you get figures or little sculptural, uh, you know, I made a, I've made like garden gnomes and, and that kind of thing for the movies. But a lot of what we do is more architectural. And um, rocks, lots of rocks. Bread and butter of movie sculpture is carving rocks. So, and I don't think that's something that people necessarily appreciate is that even, and especially now when so much of it is CGI and they still use a lot of CGI and and things to fill in backgrounds and post-production. But a lot of the immediate environment that the actors are moving through are things that have to be built, correct? Yes. And yeah, what is um, how do you go about that, especially if you're if it's an alien landscape and you know something that doesn't necessarily have an analog to uh what we see on the planet earth right, so the way the production works is they'll you'll have the art department, and the head of the art department's the production designer, so they're in charge of the overall look, everything from you know, what's the wallpaper in the kitchen going to look like to the paint colors to, um, you know, what the, how cobwebby they want the, you know, Dracula's castle to be or whatever. So that's the art department. And then like, so if it's an alien landscape or sci-fi kind of stuff, they'll generally have, they have a blueprint. So you can know the dimensions of whatever you're building or like, you know, if it's a spaceship, they'll a lot of times have 3D rendered models of it that, you mm-hmm. know, that they've already, they've already built it digitally and then we're, we'll build it from that. Um, and, uh, and then it'll be, you'll just get like an idea board that'll have, you know, maybe they want the texture to look like, uh, I don't know, a cabbage leaf or something, you know, and they'll, they'll mm-hmm. have boards and then, um, and, and then, so like the shows that I've been lead on, they'll come in, they'll come to me. We want, you know, this, this thing to look like this. So then you make some samples, hand it over to paint and plaster or whoever's going to get it. And then, then there's another conversation. They're like, yeah, we really like this aspect. Maybe you can do more deeper movement in this one or and then it's just an evolving conversation that Mm -hmm. um until you land on what you got to do or you run out of time and you got to build it anyhow yeah yeah sometimes you just have to get moving with it yeah like one of my bosses you know says if he can have a set that everyone hates equally that's great because (laughs) that's still better than 
oh, we would have had the most amazing set you would have loved, but we ran out of time. That's yeah, unacceptable. It's, so it's, it's so it's better to have something that people are that people yeah. hate versus nothing, and everybody's like, "Where's the set?" Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. So you're coming into building sets and doing 3D sculpting in this way uh, was kind of a pivot from where you started. You being from Alaska, you went to college and got a degree in biology, but then ended up doing construction. Yeah. How did how did those two things happen? Because biology just seems like that's a pretty hard science uh, path that yeah. you were headed down and then just switch over to construction. Right. Well, I mean, I was a, like, you know, a low B biology student. I was a mediocre biology student. It, it became <laughs> obvious. To, and, you know, it was the early 90s, you know, was, you kind of figured you had to, I had to get some sort of real job. Art, mm-hmm. I, what I should have done is, is gone to art school, but... I didn't think that was ever anything that you could ever make money at, that there was no way I would be in poverty. I should get like a, you know, and fishing. I was always outdoorsy. I always loved camping and hiking and hunting and fishing and stuff. So I thought, you know, this, you could get like a real job and and do that. And um, I remember my, I wanted to do wildlife. My, my uh, advisor brought me in and basically was like, I think he said something like, you know, we graduated 40 people in wildlife last year and one job at Fish and Game opened up. Mm-hmm. And he was, he kind of, not so few words, was like, and you don't have the grades to get that one job, dude. Like, mm-hmm. so I just finished it to do whatever. I had an art minor. Um, and, uh, and I had always worked construction, you know, like, and, you know, did it in college and, and then, um, I honestly loved it. I loved mm-hmm. the I loved building things and being outside and even in interior Alaska working at twenty below in the dark. It was still fun to me. Um, I am I imagine that working in that environment in particular, I mean it's it's hostile and and, and you know, just formidable in so many ways. That, you know, I kind of, it, it's kind of a great place to like really learn the craft of construction because it's, you know, here in Florida uh, or in Georgia where you are is, you know, there's weather to contend with, but it's not the freezing cold and ground right. that is, you know, hard in one season and softer in another and, and things like that. Yeah. I don't know, man. If it's cold, just put more clothes on. Down <laughs> here, it's, it gets too hot and you can't take any more clothes off and it's still too hot. You can. You just have to stay inside if you do, or at least right. on your own property. <laughs> yeah. So the construction work you did fine carpentry as well. What what is fine carpentry exactly? Well, like uh, I did some, uh, you know, cabinet pieces, furniture pieces, stuff like that. Um, the real money money was um, was just construction, uh, residential and commercial and. And in Alaska, it's a lot of uh, federal contracts, so military or Department of Transportation, or because um, those you just got paid so much better, and you could work also. You know, you work six months and then take a few months off, and you know, in the middle of the winter, and it was nice. Mm-hmm. So, 
you and I it loved sounded, it. it was I loved the I loved the work. I really did. And that's a great kind of pivot point because you you were doing the thing that you loved and you still have this calling to go to go towards the art. So you made a you made a decision to uh, go back and get your master's at Savannah College of Art and Design. Was there kind of a a moment for you when you just said, if I don't do it now, I'm, it's never going to happen? Or what what drove that decision to yeah. break away from something you were loving to uh, there was, chase there was down a lot. Um, there was a lot. I mean, I knew uh, we moved to Atlanta for me to go to grad school when I was 40. <laughs> and I knew that to really uh, con- to to grow in my career, I wasn't going to be, I, I had to become, you know, more of a, a manager, you know, you'd already gone up to foreman. I'd have to be the guy in the office wearing the white hard hat, you know, and I didn't have any desire to do that. And I kind of want, I was looking for a change. I realized, you know, that as being, it's kind of a younger man's game, you know, you start looking mm-hmm. around and realizing that you're the oldest guy on the job site. And, um, we also, in that period, we had three little kids and I had taken care of both of my parents as they, my dad had Parkinson's and my mom Mm -hmm. had a whole bunch of issues and they've, and my wife, who I met in Fairbanks, she actually grew up in Chicago Mm -hmm. and she loved, she loved Fairbanks, but she was definitely ready for a change, try something different. And, um, you know, I just kept telling her, I'm like, just as we would have moved before, but it was my parents' health had gotten mm-hmm. to the point that we couldn't go. We had to, we had to be there to watch them and take care of them. And then when they both passed, it was like, okay, you know, let's, let's go start a new chapter. And, mm-hmm. um, and I applied around and got into SCAD and they gave me a little bit of money to go. So, we came and my wife always wanted to move to the south and I was, I was reluctant, but, um, you know, cause I always figure I'm like, there's like Yankee and then there's Alaska. Like we're like, <laughs> this is a whole nother, a whole nother right. demographic. That's the next tier. But honestly, I, I find there's a lot of parallels cause it's, it's just rural and it's not, it's not either, you know, not New York or LA it's out in the middle of nowhere and there's lots out in the middle of nowhere down here mm-hmm. well I think that sort of uh being a little more remote does kind of come with it some some cultural truisms that translate uh-huh. and uh hopefully it's, uh, it's how how has it was there a lot of culture shock or did you find those similarities that um, made it feel not so not so different going from one corner of the country to the other there was definitely uh like environmental shock like we i think fairbanks was at like latitude 64 and we're at like 30 something here we're almost half as close to the equator than we used to be mm-hmm. the subarctic to the subtropics and yeah. um but uh i mean honestly i was i did, i had no experience with the south really at all uh is oddly enough, I went, I came to Atlanta for like a couple of weeks in like 96, but really didn't experience the city much. And, and 
I mean, to tell the truth, I thought it was going to be nothing but good old boys and rebel flags and stuff. And not Atlanta. Atlanta <laughs> and Atlanta, I was like, oh my god, it's it's a very, I mean, it's a very gay city. It's a very diverse, diverse cosmopolitan place. And mm-hmm. that whole southern hospitality thing, I'm like, people are really polite and and like helpful and kind. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I, I really like Atlanta. I, I'm glad that we ended up here. Well, that's awesome. As a, as a born and bred Southerner, I'm, I'm glad that you have felt welcomed into this corner of the country and that, uh, Atlanta is definitely a city that's got, uh, it's, its own swag and texture. And, uh, it, it is a great place to, to, to live and spend time, you know, so shouts out to all my Atlanta friends, uh, yeah. and family who are, um, who are there in the, in Hotland, as they call it. Yeah, I love it. Uh, so, we call it, it Yollywood. Yollywood. I, I hadn't heard that, but I like it. And it, it, it makes sense. There's a, a Bollywood, a Nollywood, and a, and a Yollywood. Moving across country, bringing your family, and making that pivot, your experience in construction and fine, and fine carpentry really gave you that advantage in uh, what was what is this booming industry now in around movie production what is it really like on the sets when you're you know you talk Um, right yeah and i mean as far as production go but i mean this was i remember i went to a union meeting and the union oh no no it was a premiere for guardians 2 and they had the the guy who's the head of movie whatever for the state of uh georgia Mm-hmm. And he came up, and I mean, I'm barely remembering these numbers, but it was something like, you know, five years ago, there was $250 million of movie and film production in Georgia. And in that year, it was like $4 billion worth or something. Wow. And Atlanta's the, I mean, this was last year, was there's more film and TV production here than any other place in the world. Mm -hmm. All the Marvel stuff is here. So since we are doing, you know, we're building sets. A lot of the times we're there, you know, or when we leave, it's another month before the, uh, the movie stars show up. So that it's just like a, it's like a construction site. It's building, you know, the carpenters are building flats and putting up walls and we're carving rocks or the, you know, the, the church front or whatever. And, um, and plasters working. So, I mean, that's one, another cool thing that I, that I do like is how totally collaborative it is all the time. And I get to see a lot of really, really talented people do really good work. Mm hmm. You know the the scenic artist that will might be able to throw up a you know some sort of graffiti mural, or they'll just make something look old and decrepit and rusted, and it's all just paint, and it's amazing. Or they'll do faux marble or whatever. I've seen some really cool stuff in that, or even plaster. I've seen guys just with a trowel and plaster be able to make whole terrains you know it just looks like natural rock or whatever it's it's really cool um so there there's that so that's what i that's what i'm usually involved in and 
sometimes, like I said, I'm I'm not even around after you know after after our part's done, then plaster has to come in and paint and whoever else and lights and um when they're shooting. If I have to be on set, that means someone like drove a forklift into something. <laughs> so and, when they call you during production, yeah, that means something's gone yeah, wrong. If they're shooting, it's yeah, it's not good. But um and does that happen you know, often? Where and I I can imagine that it can. You know, they're you know swinging oh, yeah. people around on ropes, or yeah. mm-hmm. you know they've got the sets built for some sort of action sequence, and you know something gets broken or busted or whatever. So is that that kind of par for yeah. the course? Yeah, and grips. Grips drive into everything. Mm-hmm. And what? Who are grips for for our listeners who aren't uh, familiar grips with? Grips are the guy. These are the guys that they're they run the electrical for everything. Um. Yeah. So it's you know to power any of the stuff, the lights and whatever on the sets. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's usually lighting, and they I don't know they like to drive their lift into the things I build for some reason. It's like a magnet. <laughs> well, maybe they're so in awe that they can't take their yeah, eyes off of them before. Yep. They're hypnotized. <laughs> we know that movie magic is illusions in a lot of cases. Of all the things you've gotten to work on, uh, what would you say is probably the one that people would be surprised to find out, you know, that that rock face is actually made out of you know, plaster or foam. Right. Like, what are some of those kinds of things that? Uh, uh, in season one of Stranger Things, when the kid's going to jump off into the quarry and she levitates him back, mm-hmm. um, there's that is a fake cliff face. There's a real location, the quarry. They actually shot some Walking Dead there too, mm-hmm. um, and that. The paint and plaster was so good on that that you you couldn't tell the difference where the where they digitally ditched the stitched in the fake one for the kid to jump off of onto the real set that that was like oh wow like I I was looking and I couldn't tell that mm-hmm. one was pretty cool um, I had a weird experience actually on Stranger Things two the school bus or in Stranger Things one uh, the the first season the school bus. Mm-hmm that the kids mm-hmm. hang out in. I um went in and aged it. You know, it was like it was it was a vintage bus, but it wasn't all rusty and dirty and stuff, so that's all fake. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's like uh like lacquer based pigments and stuff. So I remember walking into the bus the day after I'd finished and it and it so I kinda saw it all at once. And I was expecting it to smell like mold and musty because that's what it looked like. Mm-hmm. But it smelled like paint thinner it, you know, mm. because that's what it actually was. And that was really surprising. I was like, oh, God, that's so weird. Um, so it was kind of that, that uh, discontinuity between yeah. looking very aged but still being able to smell the uh, the, the byproduct of the work that you yeah. put in there. That it's Yeah, that it's, it's really it's still kind of wet paint, but it looks mm. like old nasty mold and stuff. Uh, there's, there's been some just really cool, you know, there's like the Ego's ship on Guardians 2. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a big egg-shaped, egg-shaped kind of thing. It's a weird-looking yeah. spaceship. The set for it 
was all of these, it's the interior that they're sitting around in and talking, all of the characters. Um, it doesn't really do justice to that set. It was one of the most beautiful interiors I've ever been in. What I, what I said, if that thing was built out of concrete instead of plaster and foam mm-hmm. and was in downtown Atlanta, it would be like the bean in Chicago. It was mm-hmm. such a cool thing. Um, and did you get a chance to design that and build it from the ground up yeah. or how did, how yeah. did that one come I, together? I came in, I came in, they had already been working on it for a couple of months before I showed up. I did some, they wanted to change some things. So, you know, cut some parts off and patch in some others. That was, I had my hand on it, but you know, so did, if you count everybody and all the, you know, the different departments, I'm sure a hundred people had their hand in that set alone. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's kind of cool with the big movies, you know, like the blockbusters that you do get to do like Mothra's temple for Godzilla was just a big, awesome. And we did these big giant roots that come crushing, you know, kind of like Angor Watt looking things. Yeah. I remember that, that scene where, it, um, uh... yeah. And which is cool. But then if I get on a little show like Goosebumps 2, I mean, all the big shows, L.A. sculptors run those. And I will also say all the L.A. sculptors that I've worked with have been wonderful, wonderful people. And, um, I mean, that's a whole, that's a great crowd. And there are some insanely talented people that, uh, work out of L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh um on these small shows I can be lead and I get to do like a lot more I'm not just an just some guy out carving rocks. I get to make like I said, like a Tesla statue or like goosebumps. I got to do all kinds of crazy weird sci fi background set pieces and stuff. Mm-hmm. And for goosebumps you did are fun. And so for Goosebumps, you were saying you did the the ogre fireplace that's a prominent feature in that in that movie. Uh, no, that's uh, House with the Clock and its Walls. Oh, sorry, House with the Clock. Okay. And also, Jack Black threw me, you know, some devil horns with his fingers on set once. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's right. <laughs> You've had a just. A great opportunity to take your your art into this space and your it's and be a part of some pretty incredible teams. I appreciate that you highlight that what's really happening on these sets is not about you as a sculptor by yourself, but it's really a a team of people who are working together from folks who are i guess you know storyboarding and visualizing yep. and thinking about these things long before to you know people who are building and then you coming in and being part of that that dynamic that ultimately produces the thing that we see on screen. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I do, I do really enjoy that. And it's, um, the hours are brutal in Mm -hmm. movies. I mean, pitch perfect three, man. I think it was three. Oh my God. I think we had 27, 12 hour days in a row for the the boat. Yeah, I remember working me like this goddamn movie better get an Oscar. But um 
But uh, since the hours are so long and brutal, I mean, this is my own little pet theory, but if you're really hard to get along with and work with, you're gone because Mm -hmm. no one can, we, you have to be able to get along with people for one, so that we can all cooperate and make this massive thing in a really short amount of time. But also we all have to live with each other for so long, you know, Mm -hmm. when it gets down to that point in in these productions, I see my colleagues more than I see my family Mm -hmm. for, you know, these, these stints, you know, week couple of weeks here and there at a time that uh it's it's just my experience has been that it i've had a lot of um a lot of really good people that i work with you know that's i agree with you 100 percent. i've had i've worked in some some difficult fields and and times where you know it was 12 18 hours a day for days on end and you know, it's when the when the work is that intense, being able to work with people who who want to who want to see each other succeed. And and, you know, it's about the success of the project and not, you know, personalities or anything. It makes a huge difference. And, you yeah, know, the people, it, it, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I, I'm just reiterating that point that it, it's that camaraderie makes a difficult situation more bearable. Yeah. And I can tell you the prima donnas I've seen don't last. They don't get called back. And it's mm-hmm. all, um, that's the other thing is it's all word of mouth and who you know. It's, I get calls from people that I've never met. It's just they, someone that's on their crew has worked with me and they really need something done right now. So they'll give me a call. And I've called people that I've never met just on the word of, you know, a buddy of mine that I trust. And they're like, oh yeah, hire them. They're great. Mm-hmm. You know. So what other advice would you give for somebody who wants to move into the work that you're doing uh, as being a, coming in with a team spirit and, and wanting to be a, a good collaborator sounds like a critical part, but what else yep. do you think uh, are kind of key learning moments for you that you wish you had known? Well, if you show up on time, be there ready to work at 6 a.m. every day, that gives you like a solid C plus. Like mm-hmm. you could get called back just because you'll show up on time. Mm-hmm. That's that's a big one. And um, don't be precious about anything. On uh, conjuring, through, well, I don't even know if I'm, well, I can. I'm not going to give it away any specifics. But on conjuring, there was a big, massive set that we worked on that. I I met a guy who was in production that I was talking to him about it. And he's like, oh, yeah, we play the, – they put it in front of test audiences, and there was some problems with the story making sense. And they mm-hmm. cut this they cut this set that – I mean, I think there was – as far as sculpture crew, there was, I don't know, six of us that worked on that thing for – 10 weeks probably and it's gone and it is gone like it's not like oh you can't see it because that's another thing is about not being precious is a lot of what we do you put your heart and soul in it and it's a it's fuzzy background you know Mm -hmm. people aren't people aren't looking at the wall behind the actor they're looking at the actor Mm -hmm. so 
um, yeah, don't be precious about anything. Get along with people, show up on time, and work hard, and you'll get called back. Excellent, excellent sage advice. So as we wrap up here, I want to go back to the beginning a little bit. You shared with me that there was a teacher in particular who encouraged you in your art at a very early age. Who was that teacher? That was Miss Robinson at North Pole Elementary in second grade. So that would have been 1978, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I hope she's still out there. She uh, she really she really inspired me. Like I said, it was it was something I had an affinity towards. I liked doing it, so I would do it. And then just getting that affirmation and praise when I was little would make me do it more which basically meant I practiced more. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't really believe so much in talent, that there's God-given talent. The people I know who are really good at stuff practiced really, in the arts, like the people I know who are really good musicians or painters or sculptors or whatever have put the hours in. And... Mm-hmm. And her encouragement just just I just did it more and more, and I liked it. I, I I just got a lot of pleasure out of creating. I always did. I always liked working with my hands. Mm-hmm. And so Miss Robinson. So shout out to Miss Robinson and all the yeah. teachers. I think that's really the magic of teaching is that uh, that moment of inspiration or that encouragement can lead to a can lead to a lifetime of of interest and passion for something and really helped shape somebody's future as it did for you. Uh, but you had another teacher, uh, one of your college professors that kind of mm-hmm. that helped you in that same way as well. Todd Sherman at Todd Savannah Sherman. college. No, that's at uh university of Alaska Fairbanks. Okay. He was, he was head of the printmaking department. I, w- I, I've always loved, I loved, loved printmaking woodblock prints. And, um, and I think now I, he's Dean of liberal arts, I think. But yeah, no, he was, he was a, he was a very good mentor and he, um, it was also the time taking care of my parents and all that. Like he was, uh, he was, I, I was really glad that he was there and he encouraged me to go to grad school and. Ultimately it's that, again, that inspiration from, from a teacher that helped to uh, take you on this journey. Yep. Awesome. Well, Chris, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you and hear about your path from uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, all the way down to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and now working in uh, working in Yollywood and making some yeah. of the greatest productions. Uh, I'm definitely going to be appreciating your work more when we have family movie night, and uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. Right on. This is Backpage, and this is a behind-the-mic, behind-the-computer listen and look at exactly how the show gets made. There are a couple of visuals here, but I'm not going to do the the audio cue uh, thing that I've done in the rest of the episode because this is really... This is like the notes section. When you're working on a project, you know how you have those places where you just scribble down your thoughts and ideas and 
that's what Backpage is. It's a much more raw, uh, impromptu perspective on exactly how Journeyman's Journal gets made. Since recording that conversation with Chris a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to watch A House with the Clock in Its Walls. And it is a really fun family movie. And of course, the sets and everything really are spectacular. Um, so I'm going to tell you exactly how I landed Chris as a guest. A few weeks ago, it was my wife's birthday. And due to the pandemic, our initial plans to go camping with her Girl Scout troop got interrupted. So then she said, baby, I want to go somewhere for my birthday and figure it out. So <laughs> those are kind of my marching orders. I started looking around and we like to do low key stuff to go to places that aren't really crowded. The beach is always a winner in the Frank's house. So I, I had some starting points. And then as I started looking for something that would kind of fit the bill, I started looking for beds, bed and breakfast kind of spots because it was just going to be the two of us. And I ended up finding Cedar Key. This is a beautiful place. It's about two hours north of Tampa in the Gulf of Mexico. And it feels wonderfully secluded. It, it's not, you know, the middle of nowhere, but it's definitely one of those kind of places you have to get. You have to want to be there to get there. Wonderful history. Nice little beach beachside kind of town feel. And I'm actually thinking about doing an episode there. Probably be in season three, but we'll see. One night I'm out looking for I'm looking for food and I find a place and make my order and whatnot. And then uh, it's just, you know, not too far away. So I am go in and I just have a seat because it's not quite ready yet. And I'm making small talk and chatting with people. And then after a little while, I realize that, you know, my food isn't ready yet. It turns out I'm in the wrong place. This spot where the restaurant was, it's actually a number of buildings that are all joined together. And they're right on the edge of the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. So you can really appreciate the ambiance. But it was an easy mistake to make. So I'm on my way out just, you know, a couple of doors down to get to the right place when this lady says, hey, were you talking about Stranger Things? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I just happen to be wearing my Stranger Things shirt. It's one that uh, my wife bought for me when my daughter Elena and I were doing like a cosplay 80s party thing. And um, I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, my family and I, we really enjoy it. And she says, you know, my husband worked on that show. So I said, oh, you know, that's really awesome. I can't wait for the next season to come out. That's pretty cool. And then I just turned to walk away. <laughs> so and then I was like, hold up. You know, you've got a podcast. This would make a great guest potentially. So, you know, I turned back around. I just said, hey, I gave him the little rundown about what the show is. And uh, he said, yeah. So then I was able to set a time to record and it was uh, a fun uh, kind of moment that just reminded me of one of my personal beliefs. And it was that I am always exactly where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be there. It's difficult to remember that when, you know, things are going, you know, sideways or I'm sitting in traffic or I'm dealing with any of life's challenges. But in those moments in particular, I like to remember that I am exactly where I am supposed to be. And it's really about being present in that moment. And um, I just think about what had happened, what would have happened if I had, uh, you know, gotten to the right restaurant, if I had left five minutes earlier or stayed another two or three minutes waiting for my food. 
And I think there's a lot of moments like that in life where we can miss what's really happening by not paying attention to what's actually going on in that moment. So wherever you are in your journey, take a moment to step back, take in everything that's going on and appreciate whatever it is you can find wherever you happen to be at this very moment.